It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. A few days ago was Earth Hour Day. And as we're at the end of March, April is actually Earth Month. We have Earth Day coming up on April 22nd, but the entire month is technically Earth Month. So, so this next month period beginning a few days ago and throughout the month of April will really be paying a lot of attention to the earth. And I think it's such an important part of our well-being mentally and sustainably for us to really reflect on how we can make a difference. There's a lot of people that say that one day is, isn't enough for Earth Day, especially right now, but people have been saying that for years. This, a lot of times you'll see that in social media, like, I celebrate Earth Day every day, Yeah, right? We shouldn't just be paying attention one day a year or even one month a year, right? So I pulled up a few different articles about how people are celebrating and how people are raising their awareness. Like a really good article I found so far is on UC Davis's website. And they said that they're celebrating Mother Earth. And I think this is actually the 50th anniversary of Earth Day coming yeah. up too. Yeah. Is that a fact, Jason? Yes, I, correct. Yeah, I'm be- pretty sure that's correct because I'm looking at the date of when this was posted, but I wasn't sure if that happened last year or this year. I think it is the 50th, right? Yeah. Before a lot large-scale events were being canceled, they asked me to actually come out to Washington, D.C. to do some culinary stuff. Oh, um, who's they? Oh, the planning council for whoever's behind the Earth Day celebrations. I met someone to, through, um, I was doing a project with Switch for Good, and they had tried to arrange that, and it didn't work out because things got canceled on that kind of scale. Well, even more reason to talk about it digitally right now. Indeed. Right? So. The university, UC Davis, but they're really encouraging everybody to start observing Earth Month on April 1st. Mm -hmm. And they'll be actually going through May 10th, which is Mother's Day, which is really neat. That's cool. So let's see if there was... Do they have any kind of recommended guidelines for individuals to take part in certain activities during Earth Month? That's what I want to dig into today for this episode. Okay, great. I mean, this is just an example because I pulled it up. It was actually surprisingly not that many people talking about it yet. I feel like people wait. So they'll probably be waiting a few more weeks or so to start digging into this. But I think a lot of people actually don't start talking about Earth Day until Earth Day. So it's really important to discuss it as as early as possible and, and think about all the different things that we can do. So we'll be doing an Earth Day episode in addition to this, but we wanted to get a head start with it. So... Uh, let's see here. NYU also had a a good article about this for their month-long celebration. Oh, I love that a lot of colleges are doing that. But you know what's really interesting? We're recording this on March 16th, 2020. And a lot of these articles were written before these colleges started to close down. Right. So a lot of shifting and, and actually even more reason to discuss it is that unless you're around other people, who are talking about these things, you just might not be aware. So the sad thing is, if you're not on a college campus, you might not be aware of something like Earth Month. 
You might not be pushed to do things. So communication and raising awareness is even important and even more important in times like these, right? So in 1970, Earth Day was initiated to encourage education and action towards addressing global environmental degradation. That year, 20 million Americans, which is about 10% of the U.S. population, mobilized in cities, towns, and on university campuses to launch the modern environmental movement. In the last 50 years, we have seen an immense political progress, innovation, and public participation, but we continue to face global challenges, the threat of climate change, mounting concerns for the future of our planet and its inhabitants. So NYU was planning on doing events, lectures, panels, volunteer days, competitions, right? And we just don't know if any of that's going to happen at this point. So it's a little sad to read. But I was going to pull up there. They have a great calendar event. So maybe we can brainstorm about how we can do some of these things virtually. Yep. Uh, social media is obviously really wonderful. So they were doing, let's see, what is this? Oh, they had like special conferences going on. They had a, ooh, this is kind of cool, a climate change idea jam. Hmm. I don't know if I ever heard that. Like a brainstorming session? <laughs> it says idea jam. an ideation session where people, experts are going to have workshops or we're going to. Again, I don't know if they're doing any of this now, but that's, hmm. I mean, they, their calendar of events at NYU is actually really impressive. And I bet you that, that uh, a lot of schools are planning on doing this. And they were doing action challenges. This looks really cool. I'm going to pull this up too. What is an action challenge? Climate action challenge. Let's see what they were suggesting. So this was going to happen on April 22nd, which is Earth Day. It's funny. A lot of these are very vague. And I think this is also so important because a lot of people just don't know what to do because things are very vague, right? I thought Earth Day was, it's on April 22nd, right? I believe so. Now I'm getting very confused because it's on their website. They're celebrating April 25th. See, this is what I mean. It's confusing. The thing that I go to in-, in It's April 22nd. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was like, wow. Yeah. They're just celebrating. They were planning on celebrating over the weekend because right. more people would be available and not going to school. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think to me, my mind goes to, and I'm always thinking about this, of how can I reduce my carbon footprint or live more sustainably? And I think asking that question right now, as we have more and more awareness every single year of the carbon output and how human activity is contributing to this, so we see in the science that is coming out. My thing is on an individual level, how do we share resources and ideas and strategies with each other to curb our carbon footprint? And you know, one of the biggest challenges that we have in Los Angeles for some people, because Los Angeles is such a spread out metropolitan area, is the transportation part of the equation. Whereas we have a really good metro system that is an underground and above ground rail system for transportation, but um, LA is still very much a car focused city. And for all of the wonderful progress we've made since the 1970s in curbing the rampant air pollution, we still have air quality issues here in LA. And so to me, it's, it's always this idea of reduction or elimination. And on that tip, I actually know several people that are intentionally car free here in LA. And I think when people on the outside hear that, like someone who's intentionally car-free, they're like, why would you do that in LA? That's crazy. But their whole point is, if you're strategic about it and you plan your routes and you use things like bicycles and walking and metro and buses, you don't have to be beholden to having a car in LA. It just requires more planning, more preparation. 
But the people I know that are willfully doing it car-free, they don't seem to be bothered by it at all. In fact, I think they feel more in alignment with that choice because their idea is reductionism and minimalism. And I think I think minimalism and environmentalism uh, philosophically are, are somehow tied together. There seems to be an overlap in those two things to me. One thing that I have found over the years as studying sustainability with eco-vegan gal is mm-hmm. just there are a lot of different things that we can be doing. Such as? No, I mean, like, literally, there are hundreds of things oh. that we could be doing. <laughs> List them all, Whitney. Like, my point <laughs> being is that we I don't really want to spend a whole episode, like, listing out all these things because sometimes they become very overwhelming. On the other hand, I just pulled up a list of 30 simple ways to celebrate. Excellent. But since we are doing an Earth Day episode, we can spread this out over that and just talk about... First, I wanted to talk about what Earth Hour is and was since that just happened a few days ago. You can still do things even after the official day. I also want to just dive in and remind people that it is the whole month. And because April hasn't begun yet as the time that this episode came out, you do have a lot of time to reflect on what you can do this month and then what you can do the rest of the year. So let's talk about Earth Hour. So Earth Hour is an organized movement that unites people to take action on environmental issues and protect the planet, right? It's very similar to Earth Day. But I think part of that is they're hoping that instead of making it overwhelming, like Earth Day or Earth Month, it's really what can you do as a global movement, right? Like people all across the world can do something simultaneously, right? And it's really about a one-hour lights-out event, which is also a symbol of a broader commitment towards the planet, right? And so this year it happened on March 28th. And the very first time that it was held, it was in 2007. So it's been going for quite some time. And I remember learning about it probably in 2009 or Mm -hmm. 2010, right? Mm -hmm. When I was starting to get more active and millions of people participate in this. It's really incredible. And what they're aiming to achieve is bring people together and deliver a strong global commitment to tackling the threat of climate change. They also feel like the staggering loss of biodiversity in nature is very important to spark conversations about all of this together, right? So I'm on their website, like FAQs, like why is the event held in late March and all of that. And the second to last and last weekend of March is around the time of the spring and autumn equinoxes in the northern and southern hemispheres, which allows for near coincidental sunset times in both hemispheres, thereby ensuring the greatest visual impact of a global lights out event. So that's why they they do it at, at that time, which I thought was really interesting. So if you didn't participate this year, you could certainly pick at any time to to reduce your electricity. I mean, that was part of the thing. It's it's not just the symbolism of doing it all together, but it's like being more aware of. I remember when I first did Earth Hour, I really had to be conscious. Like, what do I do when I turn out my lights for an hour? Right? Because we use so much electricity. Yeah. And we rely, human beings in general, rely on lights to get a lot of things done. And I'm curious now with the development of laptops and mobile devices, right? You could have your lights off, but you could technically be on your devices, right? And I think that kind of defeats the point, but I guess it really depends on what you need to get done or what you want to do during that time. I think as long as your lights are actually off, it counts. 
But maybe you can also think about things that aren't electronics. Like maybe you can sit by candlelight. I was just about to say that. You know? It's so lovely. Which is actually really lovely. It's, it is. You could have a candlelight dinner. You could meditate by candlelight. You could take a nap if you wanted for that hour. There's so many different things that you could do during that time. Or an oil lamp if you want to get mm-hmm. really old school. Yes. An oil lamp. <laughs> they even have starter kits on their website. If you go to earthhour.org, they have a lot of information on here, how you can organize your own events. There's dedicated guides. So let's see, like, what does their individual guide look like here? What you can do to help event ideas going beyond the hour. There's a lot of good information. Again, this website is up year round, earthhour.org, and you can come on here and just stay very in- informed. Some of this information is a little late because the event has already happened in 2020, such as reminding your friends and family to turn off non-essential lights. But again, you can do that beyond. I mean, a lot of people like have more lights on than they actually need to, right? It's like they're just turning them on out of force of habit, but just by, it can save you money, but it can also save electricity and just help you be more focused on like, why do you need all these lights turned on all yeah. the time? I think mindfulness is also a part of that. Whereas I know in my house, in terms of turning off the lights or even pulling appliances out of the electrical socket, yes. because you can get a vampire drain effect on your electric bill. Yep. I've really gone the extra mile to really try and be more present and more mindful to my electricity consumption in terms of unplugging high drain devices. So you're not getting the vampiric effect, but also if I leave a room, shut the light off. Mm-hmm. So I think presence, you can employ a presence practice to this whole equation too, which Absolutely. is great. Absolutely, And beyond having dinner in the dark, you can go stargazing. So you go outside. I mean, a lot of people don't take the time to do that. And because so many people participate in during Earth Hour, it's a really cool time because the light pollution is less. But if you're thinking of things to do beyond Earth Hour, you know, Jason and I went to a national park which is also natural. Arches. In uh, Utah, yes. And one of our favorite elements of that trip was stargazing after the sun went down, just sitting out in nature, far away from buildings and light pollution and just observing the stars, which is really special for us, given that we live in Los Angeles. Uh, some people go camping. So camping is another thing. Maybe you can plan a camping trip as, as the summer months come up here. You could have a night of board games and do that by candlelight. You could, people are saying host a movie night. I guess you can still watch movies with, most people watch movies with the lights out, but that still feels a little like defeating the point. (laughs) Um, Glow in the dark scavenger hunt. That's kind of cool. Like you can get glow sticks. There's a lot of fun things. So maybe it's just about raising your awareness, right? So also thinking about the type of lights they use are using LED lights. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? What type of candles are you burning? Right. Right? Because some candles are made from very poor quality materials. Sometimes they might be more or less eco friendly. So you can really pay attention to the type of wicks and the type of wax and the type of uh, scents that are in the candles that you're using. So we're big proponents for anything that raises your awareness and helps you be more mindful. And I think that Earth Hour is really wonderful. That's like, to me, one of the the biggest reasons to do it. Just as a throwback really quick to maybe when I was, I don't know, in my late teens, 
and I was first really starting to learn about environmentalism and the human impact on the environment. I uh, just wanted to give a shout out to um, several books that I think are super amazing that I discovered that were really helpful in terms of my education around what can I do in terms of my, my daily practices to alleviate the strain on the environment. The first one, and this is super old school, but I really feel like this sparked a lot of people to examine this whole equation, which was Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. Mm -hmm. So that was something that, in fact, Marvin Gaye wrote Mercy, Mercy Me, the song, about this book, really. So it's from, I believe, 1970? But anyway, Silent Spring, Rachel Carson. I remember my mom told me about it when I was a teenager. So that was like one of the first environmental books that got me thinking about impact. And the other one was The Revenge of Gaia. Mm. Revenge of Gaia is also another phenomenal book about environmentalism. And it also posits a theory that the Earth is a sentient organism, a sentient living organism with consciousness. Really fascinating. And uh, James Lovelock, is it James Lovelock? Mm. Don't quote me on that. Could be James Lovelock. The theory, the Gaia theory is interesting, but he talks about the the pact of anthropomorphizing the Earth as a sentient living organism. Revenge of Gaia is amazing. Now, the third one uh, that I can... That is James Lovelock, by the way. Good memory. Good brain. Good brain. (laughs) The third one is Living Healthy in a Toxic World. That's the third book. I remember at the very beginning, this was probably around 18, 19 years old, I started diving into these and just learning things. So to me, that's like my holy trifecta of environmentalism. And I've read other ones, but those three were pivotal in getting me to reconsider my relationship with the earth and how my daily habits and choices, consumptive, financial, what I consume, what I don't consume, how all of that has a, a compounding effect, especially now that we have nearly 8 billion humans on the earth. I think there's still a mentality of like, what I do doesn't matter. My choices and little old me, what impact does that have? But it is truly the compounding effect of that many billions of humans on a planet over time that, well, it's kind of got us, some believe, and I believe in the predicament we're in now environmentally is the mm-hmm. compound effect of those actions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's other, another important thing since we focus so much on mental well-being is yep. a lot of people start to feel like, well, I can't make a difference or it's too late to make a difference yeah. or they get, they're kind of like got this, well, we're screwed. So why even bother? We might as well just enjoy. And we have to remember it's not just about us. And I think that recently with girls like Greta, who really stood up and said, we're children, and we're the ones that are going to be around when everything goes to shit. Those weren't her exact words, but you know, maybe they were actually. She- <laughs> it's the essence of what she's saying. Yeah. <laughs> right. But it's, yeah, the essence was that, that she felt very frustrated and be- betrayed by older generations that weren't taking it seriously. And I think that It's so important for us to remind ourselves that we're all in this together and that everything does matter that we're doing and not look at that from an overwhelming perspective because simultaneously, we also are doing the best that we know how to right now and not necessarily the best that we can, but the best that we know how. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of ignorance. So this time of year is a really helpful way to grow awareness. So I pulled up some different articles. We can discuss some ideas here just to get you thinking, but hopefully not to overwhelm you because, again, these conversations can feel very overwhelming. And I certainly want to have a, a lot of compassion, even if you can just do one thing yep. 
like participating in Earth Hour if you didn't, or doing some of the things that they suggest beyond Earth Hour can make a difference. It's about the impact of everything collectively over time, the compounding effect, right? And just like we would recommend for anything in your life, any changes, whether it's your personal health or environmental health, it's really every step does make a difference when you're going in a positive direction. And instead of just throwing up your hands and saying it's too late, why don't you try to do something? Because even if we could just earn an extra hour on this earth, an extra hour of health is worth it, in my opinion. And just to keep in mind that there are so many beings on this planet, human beings, animal beings, plants, all of these things that are need our support, they need us to not give up on them, right? So one of the articles I pulled up was how to celebrate Earth Day at work, which I think is interesting. And one thing I really liked about this was you can organize events such as a screening of a movie. And one movie they recommended that I haven't watched yet is called A Plastic Ocean. There are so many amazing documentaries out there. And this one looks beautiful. So we'll put that in the show notes. And there's just a ton of documentaries that you can watch. And sometimes those can be very depressing. So you have to make sure that you're in the right state of mind because you'll see all this information and you'll think, oh, well, again, like we're screwed. (laughs) And then you start to just feel down on yourself. What was the other one, Jason? Was it Cowspiracy that really dug into the environmental side of things? It did. Yeah. Which is really wonderful. And that movie, I feel like, did not get nearly as much attention as What the Health did, which True. is by the same filmmaker. Or Orcs Over Knives or necessarily Game Changer. But those Envi- are all like about food. Wasn't right. Yeah. Whereas Cowspiracy, right? That's yeah, the one had, that really digs into the environmental focus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons that I feel compelled to stay vegan and to eat organic foods and to make a lot of my personal decisions. And also to do my best to avoid as much single-use plastic and other products as well. But on that note, I found over time, especially because I've run a brand called Eco Vegan Gal for over 10 years, a lot of people want to point fingers at you if they don't feel like you're perfect. I remember this also. As I was developing Eco Vegan Gal, I was probably the most passionate I've ever been about sustainability back in 2008, 2009 when I was beginning all of this, and I was reading a lot of books. And I remember there was, I forget her name. I'll have to pull it up. I feel like it might have been Lori David. Is that her name? Lori David? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And yes, exactly. Lori David, who produced An Inconvenient Truth and also another documentary. But she's done a lot of great work. And she was married to Larry David. Thus, she has that last name. And I remember she was had written a book. Let's see. What was the name of that book? She'd written a book that I'd read, and it was... Before or after seeing Inconvenient Truth, you read this book? Or you got to it because of Truth? I think it was Truth. after, but now it's coming up. I'm like, maybe there it wasn't a book. Maybe she was... Maybe it wasn't a book that she... I always associated with a book writing. I'm pretty sure it was her. Let me t- also type this in. She got... Basically, a lot of people were, were upset because she was flying on a plane. Yeah, <laughs> I, I typed it in like Lori David Plain and, and people are like, hypocrite of the week, you know, and there's all these lists like green hypocrites, like people be basically saying like, you say all of these things, you have a big home in Martha's Vineyard and you travel on a private jet 
And that's as much fuel as a transcontinental flight. You know, all of these are great points. But I found it so bizarre to pick on somebody who is making such a big difference in the world. And yes, maybe it is helpful to raise somebody's awareness, but to call them a hypocrite and to point fingers at them and to highlight all of their mistakes and all of that, I just felt like was really extreme. It's like as if the cancel culture, mm-hmm. we call it that now. Yep. But this idea of shaming people online has been around since the internet started. I think it's interesting because what is the motivation for someone doing that? Is it do they feel like maybe they're not taking enough action in their life and it's easier to criticize others? I always wonder for people that are kind of in that cancel culture mentality, what's motivating that? Mm-hmm. Why do they feel the need to respond? Like call someone out. Right. Why? I mean, I remember too making a, a YouTube video years ago and it was like, how to be eco-friendly on a plane. And someone was like, well, flying on a plane isn't eco-friendly, so it cancels all this stuff out. <laughs> that was like a YouTube comment? They yeah. Made? Uh-huh. And I'm just thinking, you know what? I'm personally not at a place in my life where I don't want to fly in a plane to go see my family. Because they're I live across a- the country. Yeah. I'm not going to spend six days driving across the country once a year to go visit my family. Now, I certainly could. I'm not saying that you shouldn't or that you can't. It's just that the time involved is so extreme that it makes it much more challenging, if not more expensive. I mean, in that way, it's kind of like you have to start to think what, again, is the best that you can do given the circumstances and the best that you can do with the information that you have and the resources that you have. And I think a lot of times when we talk about environmental suggestions, some of them don't take into account all of the ways that they make our lives more complicated. And a lot of people will, will give up because they think, well, I can't do it perfectly. Exactly. So why bother altogether? And then this happens with veganism. This happens with health, wellness, all of these different things, fitness. You go on and on. I'm raising Someone my thinks, hand. Yes. If, if I make a mistake, if I can't do this perfectly, then why bother? Yes. And that to me is so upsetting because someone like Lori David, again, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be pointed out and brought to her attention. I think it is important to talk to her about it and say, hey, well, why are you deciding to fly in on a private jet? Maybe she has a really good reason. I don't know what it is. You know, I also haven't looked this up in many years. I don't know what she said to defend herself if she ever did. But my point being that a lot of times we just, we kind of start to criticize somebody before we even understand their rationale behind it. And for all we know, she could have been donating buying carbon offset, which was a big thing many years ago, or she could have been doing something. There could have been some important reason to her that helped her justify it. And my thought is someone as educated and passionate as Lori David probably thought this through. I doubt that she was like, I'm going to con the whole world and make them think I'm a big environmentalist (laughs) and then I'm not going to walk my talk. I highly doubt that. On that note, though, it also reminds me of back when I was starting Eco Vegan Gal, there was a really great book and movie that came out called No Impact Man. Oh, Colin. Was, I think that was actually my first interview that I ever did Yeah, for the Eco Vegan Gal world was with Colin. And I. this is back before I started a podcast. Back then, this was like 2009 or 10. And it really would have been great as a podcast, but I didn't really know how to do a podcast back then. So I recorded it and then put it up on YouTube. So that's where you can listen to it, we'll link to which we'll link to that notes. as well. It's, <laughs> I think, a two-part 
video of me on the phone and I, gosh, I kind of like makes me nervous to think about it because I was probably really awkward and the quality might not have been that great because I remember I had to like rig up my computer in a certain way to record it. But I was so determined and excited that he said yes to being interviewed by me, right? And we had kept in touch for a little while after that. And he's gone on to do all sorts of amazing work, Colin Beaven. And he also did a great book. What was that called? Another amazing book that came out a few years ago that I absolutely loved. I'm going to look it up right now. Anyways, his documentary, No Impact Man, is wonderful. It reminds me a lot of Super Size Me, Uh that same sort of style where he challenged himself to have the least amount of impact on the planet possible. And that meant things like not flying by plane. So I think in the movie, he like took a train instead of a plane or drove places and like went to all of these big extremes. And it was just such a well done documentary that probably is still makes a, an impact today. Yeah. His other book that I loved was called How to Be Alive. And that's one of those books that I was highlighting like crazy. He's a very great writer. He also does coaching and speaking and. He does great work. So shout out to him. I think I'm also looking at his website. It looks like he redid it. Well done, Colin. Nice work. Maybe we should have him on the podcast. Yes. I think that would be great. I don't know where he lives, but we got to make that happen. Anyways, that's another one of my favorite documentaries, Mm -hmm. speaking of which. All right. So go back to this list that we started reading off of about things that you can do at work. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people are wondering... How can they make a difference in the environment that they're in, right? The micro environments that they're in, whether it's work or school and sometimes feeling like they don't matter, but collectively it can feel very powerful. So if you can gather some people together to watch a documentary, you know, even this, this could be friends and family too. It doesn't have to be at work. A lot of these things apply to each other. Doing social media together, volunteering together can be really great. There's so many different ways you can volunteer to clean up beaches, local parks, beautifying a town square, planting trees. You know, there's lots of fun ways to get involved. And as we're recording this, a lot of people are in quarantine and not (laughs) because of the coronavirus, not seeing each other very much. The socializing has changed. I'm also curious to see how Earth Day and Earth Month are celebrated given where the state of the world may be. But I actually think on that note, the self-quarantine might actually make things more eco-friendly in some way? Well, it already has. There was some interesting footage that I saw of China in the past couple of weeks. Right. So one aspect of this quarantine protocol in certain countries has been to obviously limit travel uh, for only emergencies or food. And China has had one of the most hardcore pollution problems because of the transportation and the industrial production sector. They were showing before and after side-by-side shots on the internet. The air has cleared up to such a degree in China, it looks like a, it's unbelievable. It's completely different. So I was seeing shots of Italy too, certain parts of Italy, big cities in Italy, and already the air pollution specifically has taken a dramatic turn for the better as Which, a result of these quarantine protocols. It's and, fascinating. And that'll happen in Los Angeles as well. Of course, yeah. So, Which is great for our health and the environment, it right? Is. And that's the other thing that's important to know too is that a lot of the, the, the shifts that you're making are giving you a direct personal benefit. Indeed. Well, so think- if you're ever feeling like, oh, I'm overwhelmed or, oh, I don't want to spend the time or energy doing something, think about how it'll help you. And sometimes being selfish 
has a, a ripple effect that also makes you selfless. Well, the other thing too, in, in terms of this direct moment that we're in as we record this, having a quarantine protocol where certain restaurants are, well, all restaurants at this moment in Los Angeles are takeout only. And I've been reading stats that people are going out to eat less. It's, I think it's a perfect time to do something like, say, get an imperfect produce box, which you can get fully organic, local produce. It helps cut down on food waste because they're taking food that has physical imperfections that would normally get thrown out or composted in the grocery store. You can have it delivered to your house. So you don't have to go out to a lot of the madness that's plaguing some of the grocery stores. And it's a perfect time to not only get more local organic food and support a CSA like Imperfect Produce, as an example, but you get to make food at home. So it's less driving out to restaurants, you're financially conserving, but you're also having the art of making a home-cooked meal and using sustainable local produce. Like This is actually a cool opportunity, as much as people can get freaked out by the loneliness or isolation of a quarantine protocol. Yeah, the air is cleaning up. We can, you know, use this time to make more sustainable food at home and home cooked meals. I don't know. There's some really cool silver linings in all this, environmentally speaking. There are, but then on the other side, one thing that's been sad is just to protect people's health. You're not able to use a reusable cup at coffee shops. At most coffee shops. I don't know if it's all coffee shops. Like for me, I would always bring my own mug as a way to be eco-friendly. But now you're not allowed to do that because they're afraid that it'll be contaminated. That I wonder, especially with getting delivery from restaurants, you know, a lot of restaurants put their food in plastic bags and they give you plastic utensils. They use styrofoam. They give you too many napkins. Oh my gosh. Like my blood boils when I go to a restaurant and... (laughs) This happened to me a few times recently. I went to a new vegan restaurant that had opened in Los Angeles. It was like fast food environment. I was really excited about it. I brought my own straw. I usually try to remember to do this for eco reasons. I'll, when I know I'm going to go to a restaurant, I'll bring a few things. I'll bring a straw, especially if it's like a fast food place, and then I'll ask for no straw, right? And I'll bring utensils so I don't have to use their utensils. And I'll, I'll bring a cloth or something so I don't use, need to use their napkins. And I'll even bring a container to put my leftovers in, right? That's me when I'm at my best. I don't always do that. And again, because I'm not perfect, sometimes I forget these or sometimes you have a, a last minute decision to go out to eat or something. And so at this restaurant a few weeks ago, it was like, one thing after another, they brought over a drink and I said, no straw. They had had the straw in their hand or something and just turned around and threw it in the trash right in front of me. And I thought to myself, wow, I wonder why they can't reuse that straw, right? Like why they didn't put it in my drink. It touched their hand, which it probably does no matter who they gives to, they give it to, right? But now people are so paranoid. This is actually before the paranoia really set in about Corona. Corona and all that stuff. And then the same thing happened with like forks and naps. You know, they'd hand me a fork and I'd say, I brought my own and they immediately throw it out. And it's like, I feel so conflicted in those moments. A lot of times I'll end up taking them and just take them home or put them in the car just in case I forget my reusable utensils. But I've noticed how a lot of restaurants will give you a stack of napkins, a stack. Like I'm somebody who barely uses napkins. Like I just try not to get food on my face or my fingers, right? Certain meals, you can't help it. But a lot of times I don't actually need a napkin. 
or I'll bring like my handkerchief or something with me and I dab my face and I'm fine. But some people just use napkin after napkin after napkin. And a lot of restaurants will give you like 10 napkins. Yeah, right, right. Right. And then if you don't use them, a lot of times they have to throw them out for sanitary reasons. And that drives me crazy. So I try to learn my lesson and tell them ahead of time multiple times, right? Like as soon as I place an order for something, oh, I brought my own straw, just to be clear, before they even have a chance to reach for the straw. Because I think as soon as an employee touches a straw or utensil or napkins, maybe they can't reuse it, which also defeats a lot of logic in my head because I'm thinking like, you probably touched so many things in this restaurant. Yeah. It's interesting because right now, because of coronavirus, we're in this time where everybody is hypervigilance. It's very important to our health. But it's also like, it can be so extreme at times. And before we had this big health issue in the world, it just felt like maybe it was way too extreme to the point where it was causing so much waste. And a lot of restaurants are actually very ignorant. So going back to your point, Jason, you can get delivery. But delivery is something I tend to avoid simply because of the amount of waste and even takeout, right? Yes. Like with takeout, I I usually ask for no bag. I give things back to them if I'm not going to use them and hope that they'll reuse them. But who knows if they do? And I'll write like in the notes, like when I place an online order, like, please no napkin or utensils. And some restaurants are good about that. And some restaurants give it to me anyways. And we still have a long way to go. With things like that. We do. And I think the process of habituation and automated tasks on a business level is that humans get into such a mode that I think sometimes, speaking to what you're talking about with special requests to reduce waste, they're so in their mode of doing things the way they've always done that they'll see the request or read it, but their body is so conditioned to go through the motions that they do it anyway. I've noticed memory. It's a muscle memory, exactly. Because they've repeated it so many times. It's a management thing, though. And this is the other thing that you notice is that a lot of employees are just doing what they're told. Yeah. And they don't want to get in trouble. Yes. Or they're not doing what they're not told, right? Like they're not thinking about the impact of those things. Like how many napkins do I give somebody? There's not a lot of awareness around that. And again, like, I don't know what the managerial structure is and we shouldn't make those assumptions, but it's like, I almost feel like asking, like, do you need a napkin? And you started to see this happen in some restaurants. Some restaurants will ask you if you want water before assuming you want water. Yes. Right. Asking, do you want a straw before assuming that you're going to be given one? Like asking these things is really important. So we kind of have to take initiative on both sides of it and then encourage businesses to have more eco-friendly practices. Yeah, I think too, I just want to talk about an interesting report that came out several years ago from the UN talking about the sectors of life that have the highest global impact on environmentalism. And the two biggest ones were food and transportation. So to me, I always think about in terms of our food supply of how our food is produced, how animals are treated, obviously, the impact of what you're saying, Whitney, of these kind of external factors of eating out or getting food from takeout or how we're preparing food or are we supporting organic? Are we getting local food? But also, you know, the transportation thing has been something that's been on my mind a lot, not only because we live in Los Angeles, but because there are more sustainable options out there. You know, and you've driven, you've had two electric cars now, which is very, very cool. And I want to make that transition to my next vehicle as well for a litany of reasons. 
and I've heard a lot of debate because you know how obsessed I am with cars. I've been mm-hmm. a car guy my entire life growing up in Detroit, having two parents that were obsessed with cars and a family that worked for the big three. And it just cars have been in my blood since birth. But one of the things that I'm interested in is having and making more green choices when it comes to my transportation. And we're at a point now where there's a lot more options out there to drive electric vehicles. It's not just in the luxury segment of, say, Tesla or Mercedes-Benz or BMW or some of the other luxury automakers, but companies now like you know, Chevrolet and Ford has the Mach-E coming out. Mini has their electric coming out this month, actually, which is very cool, that are at a more affordable price point. They're not in that luxury category that is, for some people, not an obtainable thing, to, you know, depending on their income source. So I'm bolstered by the fact that there's just more choices now, whether you want to eat greener, eat more sustainably, reduce packaging, eat more plant-based, eat more local. But in the transportation sector, I'm looking to that for my next car because I've had my current car almost seven years now, and I'm just looking to how I can, again, as Whitney said earlier, it's not about perfection, it's about progress. So what small steps or big steps can we all take? to move that needle a little bit more to more conscientious, sustainable living, right? So when you're ready to get a new car, perhaps it's time to check out what more sustainable or electric options are out there because the prices are going down as the price of battery technology is getting better. Now, I'm on a little bit of a rant because I want to talk about this real quick because I want to get it all out, but there's been a lot of debate between the environmental practices when it comes to mining these rare earth minerals things like cobalt, things like nickel, producing things like lithium and those things that go into these electric vehicle batteries. I've seen a lot of interesting debates online for is is that actually eco-friendly or is the damage that's being caused by these rare earth minerals being harvested? How bad is that? So there's some interesting research online about the life cycle of the production and the life of an electric car versus a gas car. And if you look at long form life cycle, from what I've seen, is if you keep a car 10 years, 12 years, Over the long run, um, from what I've seen, electric vehicles are more sustainable over a long-term ownership period. So it's like if you're going to invest in a Mini or a Tesla or whatever you can afford at the time, if you're keeping it 10, 12, 15 years and you can have a car that long, from the research I've seen recently, and I can find those articles, we can link to in the show notes, that the long-term ownership, it is more sustainable to have an electric vehicle. So mm-hmm. that's what I'm focused on in terms of me taking steps of like how I can optimize things. Right. I want to keep eating more local food, supporting more local farmers, keeping it green, keeping it slow food. But I really, I want to up my, because I do drive a gas car right now. And I do, to be honest with you, I feel a little guilty sometimes for that. Because mm-hmm. I know I could have a different choice. And as my car is getting older, I think I want to make a more sustainable choice and go electric for my next one. Right. And you've done that. And I admire you for doing that. Yeah. I mean, it was actually a pretty easy decision because my first electric car was really affordable. I leased it. And so on one end, though, I haven't done a lot of research on this, but I don't know if leasing is the most eco-friendly option. I mean, I think that a lot of those cars are sold as used cars, I hope. But to your point, Jason, for having a car a long time and and for me to keep my Tesla Model 3 affordable, I got a long, I bought it and a long um, loan. Loan, exactly. So it actually is forcing me in a way (laughs) to have the car for a long time. I mean, of course, you can get out of loans and refinance or sell or whatever else you decide to do. But, you know, it's because I knew that this is a car I could see myself having for a long time. Previous to that, my gas cars, I had my last gas car, I think, at least six years. 
I know I had paid it off. So maybe it was like seven or eight years. And that felt like a long time. And I hadn't realized before that, like all the trade-ins I was doing before and the impact that that was probably having. Because a lot of these car businesses make all this money if you trade your car in for the newer model and all that stuff. It is so important and not always thinking like, how can I get something new and exciting, but getting a car that you really feel like you're going to want for a long time. And I absolutely feel that way about my Tesla. I've had it almost two years now and I just, it feels like it's brand new to me every single day because I'm excited about it and it's just a wonderful car. And Tesla is trying to be the most eco-friendly car on the planet and committed to that. And that was also part important for me. My first electric car was a Fiat and it felt like they only made that car because they had to. They it was were a like, compliance car. Exactly. Yes. It was a great car. I love the size. It was very affordable. It was cute. Like I, It was a really great first electric car for me, but I don't think the company was in, in alignment with my outlook and ethics and all that stuff. And whereas Tesla is a hundred percent that. And when I got that Fiat, I knew it was like my tied over car until the Tesla Model 3 came out. And so as soon as I ran out of my lease and the Tesla Model 3 was available, I just made it work financially. And it is a financial stretch for me, but it's so worth it because I know the impact is much greater than myself, or at least I hope it is. <laughs> you know, we're still learning. And that's the thing is some people have come to me and think like, oh, said things like, Oh, you think you're so eco-friendly, but you know, electric cars have an impact too. And people get up on their high horse and it's like, yes, I'm aware. I'm aware. But also a lot of people make misconceptions about cars like the Tesla. And if you go into their website, they have a phenomenal, very detailed report on the company and the cars and why things are done a certain way and what they're working on in the future. And so again, it's like a lot of people just want to point fingers because your decisions can trigger inadequacy within themselves. Oh, for sure. Right? And it's also, look, it's steps, right? Because I've heard this argument around electric cars. They're like, well, do you know where your electricity is coming from? Guess what? Coal-fired power plants. It's like, oh, you do have a point, but you stating that fact, it doesn't negate the fact that I'm trying to make steps toward exactly. a more sustainable option. Yes. And now some people, if they can afford it, like my mentor, Michael, he put solar panels on his house last year, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, if you have solar panels, then guess what? You can charge your car from the solar energy rather than the electricity that comes from the grid that is in most municipalities probably powered by coal. Mm -hmm. But again, it's progress and choices that are leading us toward a more sustainable future, not just for us, for our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, like Greta Thunberg so you know, masterfully highlighted of we want to make generational choices. It's not just like, hey, what can I do before I croak and leave this earth. It's how are our daily actions compounding and affecting the generations that hopefully can live in a peaceful, sustainable, and healthy way long after we're gone? It's just like with going vegan. You know, Some people say, well, you're eating processed foods. And my feeling is if processed foods help you eat less animal products and you're doing them as a transition or having them in moderation, having them as a treat, I don't see anything wrong with that, right? Yes, they have packaging and yes, the ingredients might not be in perfect alignment, right? Like you can go on and on, but you could also pick apart anything, you know, unless Absolutely. you're willing to grow your own food and use the solar panels and completely live off the earth and never use packaging. I mean, you can go to those extremes if you would like, 
but not everybody is willing to do that. We live in a very modern world. And so it, it just really comes down to your choices and then being prepared to back up your choices and make choices out of what feels right for your heart, for your current situation, and continuing to educate yourself, right? Absolutely. I think the other end of it is that I try not to get defensive about these things. I try to actually listen to the points that people make. You know, whenever anybody has brought up issues with the Tesla, for example, I just try to go and do research and learn as much as I can to understand why do they think those things and are those things true? And if they are true, well, is this something that I can change or not, right? I already decided to purchase the car. So what am I going to go do? Like trade in the car and get a different car? That just negates what I was just talking about. So it's like, once you make a decision, you have to just try to do the best you can given the circumstance that you're in at that time. And try not to defend yourself just because it's for your ego's sake, but can you actually become informed and say, you know what? I made this choice and I found out later that it had some cons that I wasn't aware of. But here are the pros of the situation. Here's what I'm doing. And here's what I'm being an advocate for now that I'm more educated. Yeah. I want to give a random example of how I feel motivated. And perhaps the listener, perhaps you listening to this podcast, thank you for your patronage and your time. Perhaps you feel motivated in terms of behavioral change by this story. So when I adopted... So I currently have a gaggle of animals in my house. I have I have four <laughs> cats and a French bulldog. You guys can see their adventures on my Instagram page. I post often about them. But when I first adopted Lynx and Claudia, who are now going to be six years old, when I first adopted them, I remember when I was setting up the litter box, I first had them, they were kittens. I was taking their litter and flushing it down the toilet because it was convenient. I didn't want to waste the bags. The litter box was in the bathroom. It was just boom, right there, right? The poop and the pee goes right in the toilet. I read an article maybe a couple months after I adopted them that that was actually not a good thing to do. I'd never heard this before. And the reason was, as an example, is there's apparently a bacterium like a crypsodium or something in bacteria in cat feces that as it goes through the water and the waste treatment plant, that some of it can get actually released back into the ocean or the water supply. And this particular protozoa or bacteria in cat feces can be fatal to sea lions and like even large sea mammals. And I thought, God, that's horrible. Like, So once I learned that, obviously, I was willing to sacrifice my convenience. Okay, this is a big thing. Sacrifice my convenience of boop. Okay, scoop, litter, into the toilet, done. Like, oh, I'm going to take the extra time and steps to get compostable bags, put the cat poop and the pee in the bags, and take it out to my trash. Does it take more time? Yes. Was it more money? Yes. It cut more time out of my day. Yeah, but I'm not going to do something out of convenience if it's literally putting sea life at risk. So to me, it's almost like in our sense of values and ethics, can we modify our behavior and do things that are, quote, less convenient, but have a greater impact and allow more compassion and mindfulness into the world, right? So that was just one example of a choice and adjustment. Once I learned it was bad, I'm like, I'm changing this in a heartbeat. Mm Mm-hmm. It actually reminds me of something that I want to talk about since you, Jason, had mentioned something that you're working on, which is the car thing, yeah, yeah. Like your future change that you want to make. Something I've become really aware of recently is that I tend to wish cycle. Have you heard of this term? Wish cycle. <laughs> wish cycling, meaning mm-hmm. that you are putting things in the recycling bin because you're hoping that they will be recycled 
without knowing that they will be recycled. <laughs> and that you when mean- you were talking about using compostable pet bags, the truth is a lot of those bags aren't fully compostable or they'll say biodegradable on them or they really need to be put in a certain bin or something like you might be using something and spending your money on something and it might actually be a little bit of greenwashing or it might require you to be doing things differently, right? Like you can't just put something compostable in the trash. It won't necessarily compost because it depends how that trash is thrown away. I mean, there's so many other factors. So a lot of times there is that greenwashing, like the p- companies want us to buy their products because they say that they're eco-friendly, but like the compost thing is a big issue, right? So is a very complex and a lot of people just want the convenience and they want to feel better. And I'm actually guilty of that myself. Whereas, yeah, I mean, the same thing with dog waste bags. I haven't researched it in years because it just feels so overwhelming and complicated. And I just, I'm sure there's a better solution now than there was 10 years ago when I got my dog. But I remember like getting really frustrated, like, gosh, here I am trying my best and yet my best doesn't feel good enough. And the same thing is true with wish cycling. I recycle everything, like unless it has, it's like soiled enough or it's very clear. Somehow I know it's not recyclable. I put pretty much everything in the recycling bin. Do you bin. really? Oh, yeah. Wow. I think you do too, Jason. Yeah, I do. Because well, then why are you surprised that I do that? No, because I didn't know you did that. <laughs> How did you not know that Because I, I never inspected what's in your recycling oh, bin. I never, okay. I never like really phoned. But to your point, I... <laughs> I do wish cycling too because I'm like, yep. we live in Southern California. I've looked at our recycling policies, quote unquote, doesn't mean they're enforced, but they seem to be much more comprehensive, say, than Detroit, where I'm from. Like, so as an example and a tangent, my mom, very specifically in the Detroit metro area, she can only put ones and twos in her recycling bin, right? Mm-hmm. Like here, I've read that certain municipalities, you can put threes and fours and fives and sixes. Now, right. as an example, when you look over at a piece of plastic, there's generally a code that has a number assigned to it on the bottom of the plastic packaging. So I, at least years ago when I looked at it, it hasn't been, it's been a long time, that it felt to me like our recycling policies in Southern Cal were more liberal and broad yes. than, again, say Detroit, which they're very specifically like, do not put anything other than ones and twos in the bin because mm-hmm. we won't recycle well, them. Well, this is the thing is that I pulled up some articles about wish cycling and it's the practice of putting something in the recycling bin, hoping that it'll be recycled but it actually can end up creating more waste. And some of the reasons that's the case is it can waste time because recycling plants rely on complex machinery to sort and process recyclables. And so if you put something in there that is not meant to go in the recycling, it can jam up the machines and then the workers have to spend hours fixing it. It can waste a lot of money because of the whole issue with the machines and the people that have to get involved with fixing all of these issues, and it can create more waste. And let's see what the explanation is for that. So sometimes what happens is that they can't risk putting the recycling in if it's going to need to have all this sorting. So they'll end up just throwing it out. When paper products are recycled, apparently they get mixed with water and that turns into a slurry. And if there's oil on it, like grease from pizza boxes, it causes a whole issue and contamination can cause the entire batch of recyclables to be ruined. Oh, wow. I mean, and these are the sort of things I honestly had no idea about until recently. But apparently the term wish cycling has been around for several years. 
it wasn't within my awareness. Yeah. And so one thing that I've been meaning to do and maybe I can commit to for Earth Month this year is to learn more about the specifics of what can be recycled in the areas of Los Angeles because also different parts of each city could have different rules. I mean, there's so many factors. So I would encourage anybody listening to go and make sure they understand what can be recycled and what can't. And once you have that awareness, it also may change your relationship to products in general and realizing that maybe you shouldn't be purchasing the things that can't be recycled or maybe you'll purchase them a lot less. I mean, in my head, I've kind of used it to justify like, oh, I'm recycling and so I can buy this, right? And yes, I've made efforts to buy less single-use plastic, but I still go through phases of my life where honestly, I care less than I do other times. And so it's very important to pay attention to these things and to learn the rules about composting. So for you, Jason, like for both of us really is thinking about like what bags are we buying and is does it even matter which waste bags that we use and all of that. Yeah. I mean, this is what I mean and said at the beginning is there's a lot to consider. Well, uh, uh, And it's certainly not to overwhelm, but if, if you can do what Jason and I did and just pick one or a few things that you can focus on this month and commit to them, like use this Earth Month as an opportunity to examine your life, find a pain point, find a place of ignorance, find something that maybe somebody's questioned you on before and, and you got defensive about, but really would like to examine it within yourself. Like think about major things like recycling and transportation and food and reflect on how you can do just a little bit better. How can you tweak it? How can you become more informed? And then how can you lead by example and educate other people around you kindly so that maybe they can do those shifts too? Yeah, well said. This is, uh, I know we're wrapping up and I just have a tangential question because it's something that I'm super curious about and I'm going to do when the time comes for me to shop for an electric car is taking an EMF meter. And this is one thing that our buddy Luke Story talks about on his uh, Lifestylist podcast. And Ron and Lisa Barras talk a lot about EMF. Ron and Lisa Barras, shout out to both of them. We'll link to both of them in the show notes. But for me, it's one curiosity. First of all, Whitney, you know, is that a concern for you? Have you ever taken an EMF meter in the car? Like, what's your feelings on all that? I have not done that. I did that in my house, and I actually made a whole YouTube video about EMF readings in my home. So if you want to see that, that's on the Eco Vegan Gal channel. But I did not do that for the Tesla. Didn't we find out, though, that they have like some sort of protective measure in the car? I've heard that there's a certain level of shielding that they put in. Shield is the uh, word I, I was looking I, for. I don't know. I've never confirmed that with Tesla directly, but I heard that from people that they purportedly, in the cabin in which you sit inside the car, have a higher level of shielding than others. But I've not seen any literature directly from Tesla about that. Well, I just looked up EMF Tesla and... Uh, just for sake of time, the first thing I pulled up was something from August 2019. So it's less than a year ago. And it's an article said, top three reasons not to worry about EMF and Tesla. But they did have some grammatical issues that are making me wonder. But it looks like a pretty in-depth article. And they did some testing. They brought a meter in there. So it's a long article. I don't really have time to read it. But it says that there's no big problem of it. But you know what? I think this is one of those things where you want to read a bunch of different articles yes. and then do your own testing. Yeah. And actually, and, and, buy, and to even buy an EMF, what I intend on doing actually is when I go shopping, because I'm more curious than anything. And oh, also- You could do it in my car. No, true. But I'm saying when I cross shop, like if I go to different electric cars, I'm just curious to see what the electromagnetic field 
frequency is and, and how much it's emitting because right. that seems to, in terms of human health, we don't yet know the long-term potentially deleterious effects of being bombarded by that level of EMF. For sure. And I don't want to go down the road of necessarily 5G or microwave radiation. I mean, that could be when we have Luke on the podcast or we can certainly dive into it because he, he has more information than we do. But it's something that I think about a lot when I think about buying an electric car is exposing myself to that level of EMF and what are the emissions in terms of being inside a cabin and driving an electric car that much. There's actually a really good article written by Defender Shield and they make a lot of those different products. Oh, for that, cell phones yep, and things exactly, like that. They mitigate I actually EMFs. really want that and yeah. it, just because it's very in-depth. Uh-huh. It seems like they're saying it's a bit of a pick-your-poison thing because you could re- buy a Tesla and reduce your carbon emissions, or you could buy a traditional gas-powered car and reduce your EMFs. And so it's like, which one do you want to reduce oh, more? And both electric and gas-powered cars, according to them, come with their fair share of carbon and EMF emissions. And you know this article is really detailed. So we'll put this in the show notes for you if you want to read it as well. But they also ended the article on a positive note with a list of ways to reduce EMF exposure while driving in any car. And one of actually their big tips was to put your phone on airplane mode, which is really interesting given that the amount of usage we get from our phones, whether it's directions or listening to music or podcasts, perhaps. So it's pretty tough. They do actually say, though, if you want to listen to music or podcasts, you can download them ahead of time and then turn off your phone while you're driving. And that can reduce a lot of the EMFs. So lots to think about, but they say driving less often is one of the better options. And that's something we didn't really talk about too much. But just to throw this in there at the end is taking public transportation, biking, walking, really considering when it's important to drive a car or fly a plane or take any transportation that does have an impact. And just thinking about all of the different effects that those things are having on your life. Not to get paranoid, not to get overwhelmed, but just reflect on it and use this upcoming month as a way to be more informed, to grow your awareness and to spread awareness to other people in your life. That's really our aim here. And we appreciate you listening to this. We'd love to hear from you. If you have some really good suggestions, if you want to talk about anything related to this episode, you can reach out to us on social media. We're at Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. You can email us privately at hello at wellevator.com. You can comment on our podcast episode notes, which are all at podcast.wellevator.com. And you can just search for the episode. And then at the very bottom of every page on our website, you can leave a comment and continue the conversation. We would really love to hear from you. Just hear your insight, your feedback, your situations, your questions the things that you're working on, whatever it may be, we'd love to be in touch so we can feel more connected to you. And we really look forward to that. Thank you so much for listening. And as I said, we have an upcoming Earth Day episode, which I think actually will come out on Earth Day. And uh, lots of episodes coming to you three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. (laughs) Until next time, wishing you all the very best with your well-being and the well-being of the planet. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to Wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.